1987. Ronald Reagan was president. I was pegging my jeans, feathering my bangs, and wearing keds. I had just started high school. My family had recently moved, and I knew no one. I was 14 and totally awkward. At a middle school dance, I kissed a boy who was a foot shorter than me. It was the year of my bat mitzvah, and it was also the year that Dirty Dancing came out. This is Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm Nahani Rouse. And I'm Judith Rosenbaum, the executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive. We know Dirty Dancing is a summer movie, but we couldn't let its 30th anniversary go by without revisiting this classic film. I watched Dirty Dancing so many times as a teenager, I could lip sync every line. I was totally into the dancing. It's still one of my favorite movies. I love the romance between Baby and Johnny. I love the commentary on class in America. And I love the fact that the frizzy-haired, outspoken Jewish girl gets the hot guy. Wait a minute, what? Baby is Jewish? I don't think I got that when I was in middle school. Hello? Becky? Yes. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing? How's I'm... life? <laughs> it's kind of funny to like not talk to somebody for many, many years, and then all of a sudden, you know, have this call. <laughs> about dirty dancing, of all things. Right, I know. How random. So what do you remember about the movie? I remember Jennifer Grey and thinking that I wanted to be her. She just seemed like a normal person <laughs> compared to, to, I don't know, some of the other movies that we had seen. Do you think that you had a, an awareness when you were young that she was supposed to be a Jewish character and that the whole setting of the hotel was like a Jewish context? No idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Can you hear me? Stephanie, did you think of Dirty Dancing as a Jewish movie? No. Not at all. It was definitely universal for me. Lizzie? Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, so I'm doing this podcast about Dirty Dancing, and I wanted to ask you, um, did you know that Jennifer Grey's character was Jewish? No. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> Isn't that funny? No, I, I did not. Um, I don't remember ever thinking about religion or cultural background at all. Okay, Judith, what makes Dirty Dancing a Jewish movie? Well, for one thing, Dirty Dancing is set in the Catskills. All the guests in the resort are Jewish. It's pretty funny that I missed that. My family even went to the Catskills. I mean, the word Jewish is never mentioned, and it's definitely believable as a universal story. But Dirty Dancing is grounded in a particular place and time and culture, and it happens to be a Jewish world that's on the cusp of enormous change. Dirty Dancing is set in 1963. Jennifer Grey's character, Baby, is 18. That was the summer of 1963, when everybody called me Baby, and it didn't occur to me to mind. When the movie opens, Baby and her family are driving into the mountains to spend the summer at a resort in the Catskills. Kellerman's is modeled after the famous Borscht Belt hotels that were still popular in the 1960s. It has rolling green lawns, a mountain lake, and bungalow cabins. Guests are well-fed, and even the food in the movie is pretty Jewish. Pot roast, cabbage rolls, pickles. The entertainment includes crass comedians, probably Mahjong, though it's never mentioned, 
and other family-friendly activities. Okay, we got horseshoes on the sidewalk in 15 minutes. We got volleyball and croquet at 10.15 by the pool. We have calisthenics. Then on the west porch, we have a symposium by Rabbi Morris Sherman on the psychology of insult comedians. Rabbi Morris Sherman? How much more Jewish can you get? I guess I was mostly paying attention to the dancing. Complimentary dance lessons in the gazebo. The dance the lessons. Mambo, cha-cha, foxtrot. Life at Kellerman's seems idyllic, if a bit hokey. But Baby's about to dip beneath that facade and venture into a side of Kellerman's that's both troubling and exciting. The class divide is laid out in the first five minutes of the movie. Here, Baby overhears the hotel owner talking to his wait staff. There are two kinds of help here. You waiters are all college guys. And I went to Harvard and Yale to hire you. And why did I do that? Why? I shouldn't have to remind you, this is a family place. That means you keep your fingers out of the water, your hair out of the soup, and show the goddamn daughters a good time. All the daughters, even the dogs. Got that, guys? Enter Patrick Swayze's character, Johnny, with his motley crew of dance instructors. Well, if it isn't the entertainment staff. The waiters at this hotel, the Harvard and Yale guys, are Jewish. The dancers are not. Listen, wise-ass, you got your own rules. Dance with the daughters. Teach them the mambo, the cha-cha, anything they pay for. But that's it. That's where it ends. No funny business, no conversations, and keep your hands off! It's a blaring double standard. Baby's about to find out that the clean-cut college boys get away with a lot of sleazy behavior. And even Baby's liberal-minded father is quick to judge the working-class dance instructors. He certainly couldn't imagine his daughter falling in love with one of them. But of course, that's exactly what's about to happen. It's a girl's coming-of-age story. That's Linda Gottlieb, the producer of Dirty Dancing. Judith and I met her at her apartment in New York. A girl who is on the cusp of womanhood, she discovers love sex, disillusionment, and in order to do so has to transgress the limits of her own upbringing and the confines of her family. And she discovers that she's strong enough to do this. Linda told us the idea for the movie was sparked during lunch with writer Eleanor Bergstein in the mid-1980s. We sat down and she said, well, I want to do a story about two sisters in the Catskills. And one is a dancer and one isn't a dancer. And it would involve Latin music. I said, well, what's the story? She said, I don't know. I don't have the story. I just have the milieu. And I thought, oh, this is a wasted lunch. And so I switched the subject. And I said, well, tell me about you and your background. She said, well, I grew up in Brooklyn. And I was just one of those girls. You know, I was a natural dancer. And she said, I used to go dirty dancing with boys from the wrong side of the tracks. And I literally dropped my fork. And I said, that's a million-dollar title. She said, what is? I said, dirty dancing. We began talking about it in musical terms. If that's dirty dancing with its own kind of music, what's, what's the contrast? What's the, what's the plot problem here it's expressed musically? She said, well, clean teen music is the opposite. Silly girl. All of that kind of music, which is where Baby starts her journey. And then she clashes and runs into the music of, of uh, Patrick Swayze and all of his guys. So the title really gave us the whole, the whole idea of class warfare. As a professional dancer, Johnny's life at Kellerman's is worlds away from croquet games and lectures by Rabbi Morris Sherman. 
The dance staff and hotel guests mingle on the dance floor, but they're only supposed to do that in a choreographed, transactional way, when the guests are paying for dance lessons. Baby violates that rule when she wanders into a staff dance party. Music is cranked up, the dancing is hot, and the camera cuts in close. Baby falls instantly for Johnny, but he's just irritated that she's there. Your cousin, she doing this. She came with me. She's with me. I carried a watermelon. She's so tongue-tied, she just blurts it out, and then she's horrified. It's such a real moment. I carried a watermelon. We were turned down by 43 different production companies, financiers, studios. Everybody turned it down. Why? The words were almost always the same. It's small. It's soft. It's a girl's story. But the small and the soft things, I, I, uh, <laughs> I've always thought it's because men control studios. And they're afraid of, you know what they're afraid of, soft and small. They want big and hard stories. Finally, Linda got a call from a production company named Vestron. There's always a do-or-die meeting with the money when they said, um, uh, why do you think this movie will make money? Which is always really what they want to know. And I said, if you let me cast it the way I want to cast it, I think it will. And they said, well, what do you mean? Who do you want to cast? And I said, a less-than-perfect girl in the lead. And... They said, why? I said, because the girl has to be average. I said, every woman thinks my hmm are too hmm. You know, my tits are too small, my ass is too wide, or whatever. If that girl gets the guy, then you really have a wonderful fairy tale. You have a really wonderful story to tell that, that girls will respond to. And to their credit, they did let us cast this with a very unusual heroine. I mean... Jennifer, who is so marvelous in the movie, was not an ordinary leading lady. Linda says she knew right away that Jennifer Grey would be perfect for the part. She was the first girl we saw. She was frozen with fear. And we called her in, and she stood there. And we said, well, we'd just like you to dance. We'll put on some music. And she said, I just have to say something. I know I'm not supposed to say something like this, but I'm exactly like this girl. I know everything about her. She's just the way I am. She's just the, she's, she talks too much. She cares too much. She's just like me. Okay, forget I said that. And now I'll dance. And we just looked at each other and we thought, that's baby. They also knew that Jennifer Grey was Jewish and looked it. That's another way she wasn't your typical leading lady. Linda says she was looking for a female lead who would be like Barbara Streisand in The Way We Were, another love story about a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish guy. In The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand's character is impulsive and political, and in the end, she loses the waspy conservative guy played by Robert Redford. She's too much of an activist for him, which is also code for too Jewish. I have to say that as a Jewish woman, I always found that sad and annoying. And Dirty Dancing is kind of a vindication. I mean, Johnny's attracted to Baby because of who she is. He loves that she's fearless and thinks she can change the world, and those characteristics are part of her Jewishness. 
Also, he finds her sexy, Jewish nose and all. But then the irony is that even after Jennifer Grey was so successful with this film, she decided to get a nose job a couple of years later. Yeah, and it turned out not to be great for her career because she was basically unrecognizable afterwards. It does remind us that even though we have this closing scene in Dirty Dancing that's so nicely resolved, in reality, things are more complicated. And you could also look at this movie like, why is the Jewish heroine the one who has to be less than perfect? And as Linda said, that's what they were looking for. It's the ugly duckling story, and her, her um, transfiguration comes through dance. I mean, literally flapping her wings, literally growing her arms, literally learning to take flight as she does. Baby learns her toughest dance move in a lake. You know, the best place to practice lifts is in the water. Bend your knees. And go. Good. Johnny's teaching Baby to dance so she can fill in for Penny, his regular dance partner. One, two, three. Oh, sorry. Good. No, no, no. This is the moment Johnny and Baby begin to have fun together. But there was more to Dirty Dancing than the love story. The abortion subplot was, now that I look back on it, shocking that that was included in a film that was done in 1987, where this was controversial. In 1987, abortion had been legal for only 14 years. And President Reagan had made opposing abortion key to the Republican agenda. But Dirty Dancing was set in 1963, when abortion was still illegal. Baby takes her father's money to pay for an abortion for Penny. Baby's naive and doesn't understand how unsafe it's going to be. But Penny's not naive. She's scared. And it turns out she has every reason to be. He didn't use no ether, nothing. I thought you said he was a real MD. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding table. Baby comes to the rescue again. She summons her father, who's a doctor. It's a brave thing to do because it exposes her in a lie. Dirty Dancing is still one of the only movies that's dealt head-on with abortion, legal or illegal. And it highlights the class issue. If Baby had been the one to get pregnant, she would probably have flown to another country to have a safe, legal abortion. So was it difficult to get the abortion story in that film at the time? Not at all. Um, Nobody even picked up on it. You know, they just, they didn't really think that the movie would be commercial. It was a Jewish story, which meant it was a narrow slice of the market. It was a girl story, and these were men who ran studios. And it also did, it was thought that it would have no international market. And wrong on all three counts. Dirty Dancing was one of the highest-grossing films of 1987. The next year, it was the number one video rental, and it was the first film to sell over a million copies on VHS. The soundtrack sold more than 32 million copies, and the original theme song won an Academy Award, a Golden Globe, and a Grammy. A film about a Jewish girl summering with her family in the Catskills had become a worldwide hit. The Catskills has such a wonderful, warm, uh, particularly Jewish kind of humor that inhabits it, but also very much a sense of family and the primacy of family and Jewish culture. There was a great, a great closeness and a kind of innocence. It was also an insular world, In those days, Jews went to the Catskills partly because they were excluded from waspy country clubs and resorts. At places like Kellerman's, they found their own getaways and their own class of people to look down on. The the help represented the Gentile world, which was the other world. 
and Jewish girls were not supposed to traffic in that. It was very important that you had to marry the right kind of guy. It's, it is interesting that it is such a Jewish film, but it's never overtly right. discussed. Did you do that on purpose? No. The people there are in a Jewish world, and I think so many of us, so many people in the movie business, live and, and function in a largely Jewish world. I mean, we're in a bubble. And so this movie reflected it. Most movies try not to do that. They try to go out of that bubble and to be any placeville or to be, you know, Protestant America. And here it was, oh, this is, this is, this is the strength of the movie. Do you think it's a feminist film? I do think it's a feminist film. I never thought about it at the time, but I think it's very much a feminist film. Don't you? I do, but then I'm thinking back on, as you said, where, where Penny says to her, let him lead you. Don't worry about anything, just let him lead you. But that's right. In terms of dance, that is right. Somebody has to lead. That's okay. But, but it's a feminist film in that she insists on, on her own primacy, her own agency, to, to, and she takes charge of her life in a way that I think is really largely responsible for why this film has, has lasted and inspired girls. And this is just an ordinary girl who begins to experience a sexual awakening, an awakening of perception about her family, about the world, and she's true. She's true to her own ideas and call, even calls her father on his hypocrisy as a Jewish man. She's also assertive in declaring her desire for Johnny. She knocks on his door and she goes in and she says, I'm not going to leave. She said, because I can't bear not feeling the way I'm feeling here ever again. And so she asserts herself, really. She asks for sex, which is extraordinary. At the end of the film, just before the final dance, the hotel owner speaks wistfully with the band leader. Lots of changes, though, Max. Lots of changes. It's not the changes so much this time, Tito. It's it's that it all seems to be ending. You think kids want to come with their parents to take foxtrot lessons? Trips to Europe, that's what the kids want. There was this sense of this moment in time. And it's true, certainly Jewish life and Catskill life was is not at all the same. In fact, by the mid-1980s, when Dirty Dancing was being filmed, most of the Jewish hotels in the Catskills were crumbling. The setting of Kellerman's was actually filmed at a hotel in rural Virginia. It was hard to find Jewish-looking extras there, so even Linda has a cameo. In the final scene of the movie, summer's almost over, and Baby and Johnny come together for one last dance. They sweep everyone away with their passion. But Linda says it almost didn't work out that way. The ending that Patrick wanted was, well, that, that's right, that she would go away sadder but wiser. Mm-hmm. That's one of those really horrible ideas. I would have been outraged at the end of the movie if she hadn't gotten the guy. Well, you, do you think that they stay together? If you're pinning me down, I think it's good that we never made the sequel. Do I think they would have stayed together? No, I don't. And she probably went off to Mount Holyoke and who knows what he did. I don't see them as being, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Maybe there's no sequel to Baby and Johnny's love story, but we do get the sense that Baby is just beginning her journey. It's pretty easy to imagine what her future might have been like. For an upper-middle-class Jewish woman in the 1960s, there was actually a lot to look forward to. We know she starts college at Mount Holyoke. Maybe the next summer she goes to Mississippi as a volunteer for Freedom Summer, and she becomes a civil rights activist, and... 
then, like lots of other women, she notices the inequality among the sexes there, and she has a feminist awakening. I can even imagine the consciousness-raising groups and the protests she could have been involved in. By 1968, she'd be graduating from college. And maybe she gets involved in some of the things we've covered on this podcast, like the protest at the Miss America convention, or maybe she's a young mom in Boston when the Our Bodies, Ourselves Collective was coming together. By the 90s, she's probably rediscovered her Judaism and had an adult bat mitzvah. I love that idea. Being Jewish made Baby who she was. And even if you didn't know she was Jewish, you knew, like Johnny knew, that she was special. Sylvia! Yes, Mickey? How you call your lover boy? Come here, lover boy! And if he doesn't answer? Oh, lover boy! And if he still doesn't answer? I simply say... Thank you for joining Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. We also want to thank this episode's sponsor, Out of the Box Judaism, which highlights the relevance of ancient traditions in our modern lives. Out of the Box Judaism is extending the Hanukkah theme of rededication with a program that helps you rededicate yourself to the things that are important to you. Learn more at www.outoftheboxjudaism.com rededicate. Ibi Caputo edits our scripts. Special thanks this month to Julie Subrin and Ilana Weinstein. Visit us online at jwa.org slash canwetalk. You can also find Can We Talk just about anywhere you get your podcasts. We're looking for sponsors for Can We Talk. Please get in touch with us at podcasts at jwa.org. You can also help us produce more episodes by making a donation at jwa.org slash donate. I'm Judith Rosenbaum. And I'm Nahani Rouse. We'll see you again next month.